Be said, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation. We'll pick up with the letter to the third church out of seven in chapter two. I remember a couple of months ago when I said I was going to go through Revelation, everybody began to say, talk about all that prophecy stuff. We'll get there. You'll have more than enough of it, I'll promise you, by the time we get to chapter 6. As I said, we're in uh, the middle of the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, then called uh, now today Turkey. These are located mostly toward the western coast of Turkey. We look first at the uh, letter to the church of Ephesus, which we're fairly familiar with because of the letter in the New Testament to that church. It uh, had, uh, had serious problems by the time this letter was written. Interestingly, these letters are written by the Lord Jesus himself. Of course, uh, God the Holy Spirit inspired every word in the Bible, but uh, these are really special letters because the Lord Jesus dictated them, so to speak, to his amanuensis. Uh, the Apostle John. And then last week we looked at the uh, letter to the church at Smyrna. Remember the persecuted church? Uh, you might call the first church the loveless church. Today we're going to look at the compromising church. Church at Pergamos. You say it in American, it's Pergamos. As we go across some of these uh, names, we'll, we'll try to uh, stick to the original if possible, but we're going we're to lapse into Americanism once in a while, like Thyatira. But... Um, this is the third letter now. So we'll begin in verse 12 of chapter 2 of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says, He who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But... I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which, I, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. We're going to look briefly at the passage here, uh, verse by verse, as we usually do. But then we're going to get caught up. I said uh, when I started this series that it's generally believed that the uh, letters to the seven churches not only have an immediate application to seven churches, which actually did exist at that time, but that they also picture the flow of the history of Christendom. I say Christendom as opposed to the church because it's the history of uh, a picture of the history of all those who have named Christ through the centuries, whether they were really saved or not, and the general flow of um, what happened within Christendom through the centuries. So we're going to take a little time. We've never, uh, in the history of Calvary Bible Chapel, looked at church history before. And so I'm going to take a few uh, messages 
and just give you an overview and show how indeed the, this, these letters uh, portray that history. But uh, back to the letter. Notice it begins uh, again to the, uh, I, I prefer the word messenger, it's agalos in the, in the Greek, and it can be either word. And uh, I think that's a, probably a better uh, translation. These things says, he who has a sharp two-edged sword. Remember the first section of each letter uh, has an identifying trait of the Lord Jesus, which he chooses from elsewhere in the book of Revelation, which will be peculiar to that church. It will be particularly applicable to them. In this case, he refers to a phrase which was back in chapter uh, 1, verse 16. He is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And uh, it's going to occur later in this letter, of course, because it's a picture of judgment. And he is warning them that he is going to judge them unless they do something about the false teaching within the church. Then, uh, again, the standard format of the letters. He then says, I know your works. And here, he doesn't really list uh, what they do. First of all, first he mentions where they are. He says, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And uh, now, it's not clear that there actually was a throne somewhere in Pergamos that Satan sat on. That's possible, some kind of a spiritual thing. More probably, the Lord means that Satan was probably very active in the region around Pergamos, and in fact, at a home and in great control. He's called the prince of the power of the air, of course. He's the prince of this world, not just the area around Pergamos, but uh, apparently he really had this area in his grip. Sounds a lot like San Francisco. And uh, here these believers were right in the middle of, of this uh, area of intense activity by the devil. I think that's encouraging. Uh, the Lord uses the sandwich method whenever he can, by the way, in these letters. If you don't know what the sandwich method is, that's the best way to uh, approach someone when you have something to tell them that may not be pleasant for them to hear, whether a rebuke or, or an exhortation. The sandwich method is, is you have two pieces of bread with the meat in between. And so you begin with an encouragement, then you say the rebuke, and then you try to end with an encouragement. And as you notice, the Lord does that. He begins, in most cases, when he can, except for a few places where um, he has no meat in the bread, in the case of Smyrna, uh, and later Philadelphia, that is no, no rebuke. And uh, unfortunately, in the case of Laodicea, as we'll see later, there's no bread. There's actually nothing he can find to encourage them. But here he has the typical pattern. He begins with the bread, and he says, I know your works. He encourages them. And besides uh, the, the encouragement of recognizing what they've done, he, he tells them, I know where you are. I know where you live. I know where you uh, are trying to share the gospel. And it's a tough area. It's a tough neighborhood. That's good. I'm glad he does that. You know, I empathize. I understand. It's difficult for you. It's where Satan's throne is. You know. Then he uh, proceeds to the commendation and says, you hold fast to my name. And did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, and if you look in your Bible, you don't see any little letter next to that name Antipas, because there's no cross-reference. We're not sure exactly who he was, except that the Lord has immortalized him in the Word of God here. He died for the faith, one of the early martyrs for Jesus, in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you. He died there. He was killed uh, as a martyr. He died for the faith there in Pergamos. 
So that's how bad things were. Pretty bad. You, d- you got killed, you know, for being outspoken for Jesus. Who was killed among you where Satan dwells. There he, he says it again. <clears throat> okay, now the rebuke. Now the meat in the sandwich. But, I have a few things against you because you have there, I want you to notice that, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. We're going to look at Balaam. I know we have a lot of people here that probably have never read about Balaam, or if you did, you've forgotten who he is. He's back in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Quite a bit devoted to him, about three or four chapters. I want you to notice that because this is the first mention of a false teaching within the church. You remember the previous churches? Uh, He commended them because they, they were able to discern the false teaching and it was always outside. This is the first time now that the, that the false teacher is actually within. He says, you have there, within you, this false teacher. And he names him Balaam. Uh, that probably wasn't his real name, just like later Jezebel is not the real name of the prophetess at Thyatira. God is using pictures from the Old Testament of these false teachers to characterize them. There was something in particular about Jezebel, and there was something about Balaam that characterized these false teachers. We'll look at You'll, learn all, you'll, you'll know all about Balaam by the time we're done here and what's wrong with Balaanism. But right now, I just want to focus on the idea because you're going to see uh, that this is really a picture of the next stage in the history of the church. Not surprisingly, uh, it began after the persecutions. Remember Smyrna last week, the, the theme there was persecution, which was really the second stage of the church. After that came compromise. And by the compromise... Uh, false teaching, and these other things related to Balaam. Not only that, but notice verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. That should ring a bell with you. If you've been paying attention here, you've seen that before. Look back uh, to the church at Ephesus, verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You see that? See, the early church distinguished the Nicolaitans as false teaching. And, and uh, if you have a Schofield Bible, you'll have a, a little footnote there describing that their, the prominent problem with the Nicolaitans was their uh, early introduction of this clergy laity idea, that there was a special class of uh, men who did all the religious stuff and everybody else uh, warmed a few. And uh, these, these men had special titles and special clothing and uh, special privileges and so on. Uh, also, their teachings themselves, besides the structure of the church, were heretical about the person of the Lord Jesus and so on. But now notice in uh, Pergamos, he says, thus you also have those. There it is again. This time, the ch- they not only don't hate it, it's within the church. So, things right now are going downhill as we make our circle through the seven churches, because the church at uh, Pergamos has not only not discerned between good and evil, but they've actually permitted the evil to come within the body itself. And so it should be no surprise that the Lord Jesus says in verse 16, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them, notice, with the sword of my mouth. He says, of course, repentance in this case would mean uh, putting away this false teaching and anyone who does not deny it uh, and if he says, if you don't, then I will. Judge yourselves as you be judged. 
Okay, uh, let's look now at uh, Numbers chapter 22, and we'll find all about Balaam and, uh, ba- and uh, Balak. Balaam is the prophet and Balak is the king. He wasn't a king over Israel, but rather a king over Moab. Okay, Numbers 22. Where are we in the history of Israel here? Let's see, put in your thinking caps. Where are we in relation to the uh, wandering before or after? You've got a 50% chance of being right on that one. Ding, I'm sorry, your time is up. <laughs> it's after. It's after the wandering. In fact, uh, the, the Lord has, um, has just, just, about, just had them take a, a second census. <coughs> the book of Numbers is, is named Numbers because God had the people number themselves. And uh, they begin that way when they're just, they've just come out of Egypt. And uh, not long after that, of course, they come back with the evil report of the spies that went into Canaan. And God judged them and he said that no man uh, under 20 is going to survive the next 40 years. Uh, that was his judgment upon them. And they wandered, as you know, in the wilderness for 20 years. And right in the, at this point, he has them take a second numbering or um, census. And uh, he says plainly there that there's no one left from that period, 40 years ago, that was uh, over the age of 20, except two men. Now that one you'll know, right? Who are the two? Very good. Joshua and Caleb, that's right. So now they are, 40 years later, after the wandering, they're ready to go into the land. They're poised. Uh, Egypt's down here, and they've wandered in the wilderness. Canaan, or, or future Palestine and Israel's up here, and they've, they've gone around, and they're poised on the far uh, shore of the Jordan River, ready to go in and uh, take Jericho. So they're, they're ready to go. They're in the land of Moab, and Abalak is the, is the local ruler, and he doesn't like them there. Uh, they've had uh, a series of victories just before this, and he is terrified that they're going to do the same thing to him. And so um, he, he knows, he's, or apparently he's heard, you know, that the Lord God... Now, when I say Lord... And when you see it in here, particularly all uppercase, remember, that's Jehovah. That's the name of the Hebrew God, our God, the God, the one true God. Okay? Not just a generic term. He has heard of Jehovah, the Lord, and he knows that he is with them. And so his uh, first defense is not going to be so much uh, fighting as to get hold of a prophet who's associated with this God that they have. That would be the tendency of a pagan in those days. You know, find it, let's, let's understand their deities and try to get at them. So he gets hold of Balaam, and apparently Balaam, he is not a Jew, he is not from the nation of Israel, he's from someplace else, nearby. Um, <clears throat> he is a self-proclaimed priest and prophet of Jehovah. He is not a good man. You may think that when we go through this, but he's labeled elsewhere in Scripture, clearly, particularly Second Peter, as a false prophet. Okay, But he's a prophet for hire. I want you to notice that. That's probably his key uh, attribute. And remember when we talked about uh, the church after the persecution, those things really began to set in to uh, the Christendom. Laity, paid leaders, men who were doing uh, leadership for money. And in fact, you can recognize that as the power, beca- as the church became prominent, glory and money and position and fame beca- became temptations for, quote, leaders 
in the church and of course led to the, the incredible uh, distinction between uh, in the then Roman church, which didn't come into being, by the way, until really 600 A.D., not with Peter. The first pope was Gregory I in 590 A.D. But by that time, they were incredibly separated from just the, the, the common uh, believers. And so Balaam is really a good picture of that because in this little episode, you're going to see he goes after the money, he goes after the honor, he goes after the glory, he goes after the fame. It's all there. And later... Uh, he leads uh, the Israelites into immorality as well. So, verse uh, 1 of Numbers 22. We'll just read a few verses out of this section to give you a flavor of what Balaam's like and, and what happened. It's a wonderful section, really, to show the sovereignty of God um, in his dealings with his people. Verse 1, Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now, Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. You think they were afraid? So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up all that is around us, as, as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Okay, well, they, he sends messengers. They go to Balaam. Balaam says, uh, wait here and I'll go check with the Lord. And the Lord says, you stay where you are. You're not going over there. You're not going to curse my people. So uh, Balaam goes back to the messengers and he says, sorry, God says no. You guys might have, you made a, you wasted a trip. Just go on back home. Well, Balak doesn't give up easily. And so in uh, verse 15, then Balak again sent princes, more numerous and more honorable than they. Let's, let's use some dignitaries here, men of importance. You know, maybe that'll have some kind of influence with Balaam. Interesting, Balak knows his man because Balaam does not obey God. Or let me put it this way, he doesn't take no for an answer. He goes back and checks again just to make sure. Which in this case is sin. God told him plainly, stay where you are. At this point... Um, God is going to use uh, Balaam now for his own purposes. So he says, all right, go ahead and go. God says, go ahead and go with him. Much to Balaam's delight. And it's at this point that you read in Second Peter that uh, he loved the wages of righteousness. Of, of, excuse me, of unrighteousness. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. He was in it for the money. And he was tickled pink that now he was going to go and get some... Uh, money and some glory along with things. So he thought. Okay, and then in 21 through about, uh, oh, down to verse 30, you have the episode of the talking donkey, the only uh, instance in Scripture we know of where God actually spoke through an animal. And uh, it's kind of a humorous episode because Balaam gets irritated with the donkey because he won't go where he wants him to. Starts beating the poor thing. Finally, the donkey talks back to him and basically rebukes him. Imagine being rebuked by a donkey. And uh, 
he, he, he really gets upset. It's funny, he doesn't say, what are you doing talking? He talks back to him. And, uh, you know, he says, why aren't you you're a donkey? You're supposed to do what I tell you. What's going on? And it's that point in verse uh, 31 that the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. And he saw the angel of the Lord. You've learned by now the angel of the Lord. When you see that expression, that's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ called a theophany. And uh, he rebukes Balaam for striking the donkey. He lets him know that he's not pleased with Balaam. Uh, Balaam says, I'm sorry, um, you know, let, let's, but let's get on with things. So he goes in to uh, meet Balak in verse 36. Balak hears that he's coming. And goes out to meet him. He, uh, he acts a little irritated at first. You know, why did you take so long to get here? And uh, 38, basically, Balaam says, look, who am I to resist God? But I'm here now. So, fatal error. In uh, verse uh, 41, so it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. You'll find out. Balak is convinced that was a bad choice later on. Well, we see Balaam at work in uh, verse 1 of uh, chapter 23. He does all the outward things of a priest of the Lord God. He tells Balak, build seven altars for me here, prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did it. They're offered, uh, pretending to be a priest out of uh, Leviticus, which he cannot be. He's not even a Jew. But at least he's doing all the outward right things. I hope as I'm going here, you're getting a picture of false teachers or, or even people who go through the outward motions of Christendom because this is really what it's a picture of later in the church at the Pergamos. The guy's doing it for money. He's not doing it to honor the Lord. He's doing it for profit. But at least he's putting all the trappings, all the outward actions, you know, in the right places so it looks good, looks right. Balak certainly uh, is impressed by the whole thing. But he doesn't account for the Lord. He does that once in a while. He'll get in the way of a guy like that and instead turn things uh, to, a, to his own ends. So, uh, Balaam tells Balak to stay here in verse 3. And I'm going to go over there and meet with the Lord and find out. Remember, remember what Balak wanted him to do? He wanted him to curse the Jews, right? So, Balaam goes and uh, find out what, what the message is to say. Verse 5, you, you don't find out yet. It just says, The Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. We don't know what it is yet. But we find out when in verse 7, he opens his mouth. And I'll just highlight it. We're not going to read every one. There are actually four statements. And they end up being prophecies. They're incredible. God gives him messages, all right, but they're not curses. They're blessings. So uh, the highlight of the first one in verse 8, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. There, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. That's pretty good. Well, Balak wasn't happy with that. That's not a curse, that's a blessing. You see, God is, is overruling here. And um, interesting that uh, Balak gets upset. I like this in verse 13. Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall only see the outer part of them and shall not see them all. <laughs> you understand? 
where they saw them before, you know, he had, Balaam had a full view of all the Israelites, and Balak's convinced because he saw so many people, he was intimidated. So it's going to take him to a different vantage point to look down, and this time he'll just see a few Jews. And that way, he won't be so impressed. And now maybe he'll curse them. So he says, curse them for me from there. Well, they go through the routine again of uh, the offerings, and uh, Balaam goes to get the message from God. And unfortunately for Balak, it's the same type of message. Uh, we'll just highlight it. Verse 21, this is Balaam's oracle, as it says in, in my Bible. It's, it's his uh, proclamation that is a non-curse, but rather a blessing again. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. Okay, well, Balak's really getting frustrated. And the, but the guy doesn't give up easy. He takes him to another place. And uh, verse 28, this time, this overlooks the wasteland. <laughs> I guess if uh, Balaam sees nobody, then uh, maybe he'll, he'll improve his, his curse. Well, you guessed it. The third time, God overrules again. And uh, just a highlight of the, the third blessing is in verse 5. How lovely. I'm reading this because uh, you've probably heard of some of these phrases. They're well-known phrases about the nation of Israel. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Well, verse 10, Balak's anger was aroused. Uh, he says, I called you to curse my enemies, and look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. He's had it. So he sends them back home with no honor, probably therefore no money. And uh, so Balaam isn't done in uh, verses 15 through uh, 25 or, to, or 24. He ends up actually cursing uh, not only Balak, but all the surrounding people and prophesying, again, this time prophesying what the Israelites are going to do to them before he finally leaves. Uh, I like this verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. Is that interesting? Who's that? Huh? Yeah, that's the Lord Jesus. Isn't it? God really filled his mouth. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tuma. Talking about his ultimate triumph in the, in the last times, really. Okay, well, uh, verse 25, Then Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place. Balak also went his way. And you think we're done with Balaam. But if you remember back in the book of Revelation, it said something else about him, that he uh, led the children of Israel into uh, idolatry and immorality. Read on, chapter 25, just the first three verses. Then Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Now, if you read on there, you're not going to see a word about Balaam. We really don't find out until chapter 31, turn there, that it was indeed Balaam who inspired this great sin. 
Moses is confronting the people with what they've been doing in the land of Moab, their immorality, their idolatry. And uh, we find out in verse 16 of Numbers 31, Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Which really is, uh, we'll go back to Revelation now, is really, um, it's ironic because it's exactly what happened in the history of the church. Balak could not hit the Israelites head on. He couldn't uh, get them with a direct assault. Just like the persecutions uh, under Diocletian and, and the others corresponding to the church at Smyrna, all, they, all that did was make them stronger, made the church stronger. And so since Satan couldn't get through a frontal attack, he got them from the inside, you see. And just like Balaam did that uh, there in Israel, back in the book of Numbers, as so it happened here in the church at uh, Pergamos, as opposed to the church at Smyrna, and so it happened in the history of the church. Um, it was interesting. Satan is confronted with his new entity, the church. Remember, it was, it was a new thing. Here are people permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. He'd never dealt with a, an institution, if you want to call it that, like that before. And so he tried the well-known tactics, and uh, his frontal assault was, was uh, one of his key weapons, and it didn't work this time. You see, uh, in this case, what he did, it drove the believers closer to the Lord. He ended up really keeping the, the, the church pure, holy. Uh, as I said last week, it, it was not um, healthy to pretend to be a Christian. The church was pure. You, if you said you were a Christian, the chances were you really knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, we're, we're in close fellowship with him. Because in many cases, your life was in peril. So, um, the compromising church, the church of Pergamos, really is a, is a picture of the church from about 100 to about 300 A.D. All right, I said, now we're going to take just a, a little bit of time. This is going to be probably one of the few times that we're going to look at actual church history, but it's, it's for a purpose in this case to show, really, uh, the accuracy of Scripture just in this little short section of uh, the history of Christendom. Let me just review for you first. We looked at F Ephesus. The first church was Ephesus. Remember, that was a church that had lost its first love. And that's really a picture of, of what's called the apostolic church from uh, about the ascension of the Lord Jesus, obviously the day of Pentecost, to about 100 A.D. And there, the best record we have of the history of the church is right here. In fact, it pretty much ends right around the end of the first century. The, the letter we're looking at right now, uh, the letter, the epistle of John, Revelation to the, really meant to send to the churches, was written around 95 A.D., Paul was typically the one to address those. But in many cases, there was uh, a, a, a lapse in the lives of the Christians themselves, a departure from their first love. Probably the greatest admonition to the church is in 1 Corinthians 13, the, the chapter on love, and the call uh, to return to it. Just like in Acts chapter 8, God used persecution 
to strengthen the church. And it really uh, began in earnest around the, the end of the first century, around 100 A.D. Let me just read a few passages now out of this uh, book of the history of the church, and you get an idea of uh, what it was like. And as you listen to this, just imagine being a believer at that time. Um, it's interesting, the church endured little persecution as long as it was looked upon by the authorities as a part of Judaism. You see, uh, there was a, an expression, religio licata, that's Latin, it just means a legal religion. Judaism was a legal religion under the Roman rule. And in the very beginning, it took a little while for the Romans to understand that this was not just another sect of Judaism. That makes sense, doesn't it? You know, most of the early believers were Jews. It started in Israel. And so from the Roman point of view, you know, they weren't out to find all the fine distinctions of, of quote, religion. As long as it didn't upset the peace in the provinces, that's all they cared about. And it wasn't until, really, the church grew so greatly and so many believers um, appeared on the scene, they became more interested. And they looked into it and they discovered that it wasn't a sect of Judaism. But rather, to, from their point of view, it was a whole new religion. Okay? And uh, that was really the turning point, and that was around 100 A.D. when that happened. And at that point, when it was distinguished from Judaism, they became an illegal sect. And that's when the trouble started. Uh, religion could be tolerated only as it contributed to the stability of the state. Since the rapidly growing Christian religion was exclusive in its claims on the moral and spiritual loyalty of those who accepted Christ, when a choice had to be made between loyalty to Christ and loyalty to Caesar, Caesar was bound to take second place. This was conceived by the Roman leaders, bent on preserving classical culture, as disloyalty to the state. Imagine being a believer at that time. Imagine being told that the ruler way over in Rome, the emperor, is God and is to be worshipped. How would you respond to that? What would you do if, as, they, as they're parading through you know, with maybe an icon of Caesar, and you're told to bow. You've got to make a choice. So here are all, hundreds and, and now thousands of people who are refusing to worship Caesar. And it's not so much a religious problem, they see. They see it as a, as a problem of apostle revolution, you see. It's against the state. And so that coupled with the fact that it's no, it's no longer a part of Judaism, therefore not a legal sect, uh, then they're ready to go after it. There are other reasons. The secrecy of the meetings of the Christians also brought moral charges against them. Public rumor made them guilty of incest, cannibalism, and unnatural practices. Misunderstanding concerning the meaning of eating and drinking the elements, representing Christ's body and blood, easily led to the rumor that the Christians killed and ate infants in sacrifice to the God. These things are in the ancient writings at the time. This is what the Romans suspected. Uh, not only that, Christians separated themselves from pagan gatherings at temples, theaters, and places of recreation. Oh no. You know, if you were a Roman, then you enjoyed all the games and so on. And these guys didn't. They're weird. There's something wrong here. They're different. They were holy, is <laughs> the word. They were set apart. The purity of their lives was a silent rebuke to the scandalous lives that people of the upper class were leading, and those were the people in power. The Christians' nonconformity to existing social patterns, I hope that's true of the believers today, 
led, a, led the pagans to believe that they were a danger to society and to characterize them as haters of mankind who might incite the masses to revolt. When these kind of paranoia is set in at the government level, you're in trouble. And of course, that's what happened. It was more than, it was more than just religion. It was more than social. It was also economic. And we have an example of that in the book of Acts. You're not there yet. But um, when you get to Ephesus, uh, there was a guy who was uh, making silver idols there. And basically, uh, Paul put him out of business because a lot of people got saved and they wouldn't buy the idols anymore. And that was true throughout the, uh, the empire. Priests, idol makers, soothsayers, painters, architects, and sculptors were uh, slowly declining in their business. So they were complaining. There was uh, early persecution then, around, starting around 100 A.D. Uh, in 112, Pliny, this is interesting, here, here's a real quote from a guy at that time, wrote a rather interesting letter to the emperor who at that time was Trajan. And here's his information about these Christians. He says, The contagion of this superstition has spread in the villages and rural areas as well as in the larger cities to such an extent that the temples have been almost deserted. Isn't that good? That's an improvement. And the sellers of sacrificial animals impoverished. Oh no. Pliny went on to inform Trajan of his procedure in treating Christians. When someone informed on a Christian, Pliny brought the Christian before his tribunal and asked him whether he was a Christian. Imagine being there. If he still admitted the charge after three such questions, he was sentenced to death. In his answer, Trajan assured Pliny that he was following the correct procedure. Well, that was bad enough. It really got bad around 250 A.D. And you say, why 250? Well, you may be surprised, but uh, there was a Y1K problem in Rome around 250. It turns out, oh, let me quote this book. This was an uncanny quote when I read it. This is right out of the book. Listen to this. There is always a good deal of superstition concerning the end of a millennium. Isn't there? And the Romans were no better in this regard than people in the Middle Ages just before 1000 or the people in 2000. Persecution of the Christians seemed a logical way for the Romans to overcome their troubles. The year 250 in, in Roman reckoning was the millennial anniversary of the Roman Empire. Actually, not the Roman Empire, the city of Rome. Pay attention now. Ignore the flashing lights and the bells. Uh, in their estimation, you all remember Romulus and Remus, the two boys suckled by the she-wolf. I'm sure you've heard of that somewhere in history. They were supposedly the founders of the city of Rome. Well, they supposedly did their thing about 750 uh, B.C., you got 750 B.C. plus 250 A.D., that adds up to what? A thousand. So in the year 250, the Romans were celebrating, pay attention now, they were celebrating their millennium. Okay? And if you think, we're superstitious, boy, were they ever. And it turned out that that was one of the worst years for plague, famine, civic unrest, uh, and many other woes. They had a terrible famine. There was a plague that was sweeping the Roman Empire. And they looked upon all this stuff and they said, oh man, here we are in our millennium and there's all this bad stuff going on and needed somebody to blame for it. And guess who that was? Right. It was the Christians who were already being persecuted, but it, became, it began big time now. 
in uh, about 250. And uh, the, the guy responsible was Decius. He was the emperor at that time. And here's what he did. He issued an edict in 250. It's subtle how he did. I mean, he didn't go right out and say, are you a Christian, and, and, and kill them. This is what they did. Because they, they learned by now, if somebody was really a believer, then they would not bow down and worship idols or sacrifice to them. So here's what he did. He issued an edict in 250 that demanded at the least an annual offering of sacrifice at the Roman altars to the gods and the genius of the emperor. Those who offered such sacrifices were given a certificate called a libellus. Uh-oh. The church was later agitated by the problems when some of the Christians uh, went through hoops to try to get these things. But the point is, if you, if you were stopped on the street and you didn't have a, li- a libellus with you, you were dead. You had to be able to prove that you had been the last offering to the, the idols and to the emperor. And so, in fact, I have a little picture of, uh, I have a, actually a parchment of one. This is one that was owned by a, a non-Christian, a, a Roman. And it says in here, basically, this guy's been a good boy, you know. He's gone to the offering, he's, he's, he's done his thing, and so here's his libellus. You can't touch him. The Christians typically wouldn't have one of these. And so uh, they were being stopped randomly, or if people informed on them, and they were being put to death as a result. Uh, the first edicts, there, there was another wave in uh, about 300 under Diocletian. He ordered the cessation of meetings of Christians. He destroyed the churches. By then, they'd actually begun to have their own buildings, interestingly enough. Uh, the deposition of officers of the church, that is the arrest, the imprisonment of those who persisted in their testimony to Christ, and the destruction of the scriptures by fire. They, they, they wanted to burn up all of the Bible. Praise God, they didn't succeed. A later edict ordered Christians to sacrifice to the pagan gods on pain of death if they refused. Eusebius pointed out the prisons became so crowded with Christian leaders and their congregations that there was not enough room for criminals. Christians were punished by loss of property, exile, imprisonment, or execution by the sword or wild beasts. It was a horrible time and the church at Smyrna was the second letter remember we looked at is a perfect picture of the, of the second era of the church. Terrible, terrible time. Uh, many of you probably heard some of the stories. Fox's Book of Martyrs. Martyr, that word M-A-R-T-Y-R comes from a man, Justin Martyr, who died for the faith at that time. And, and since then we've used that word to apply for, to someone who died for the faith. But uh, they became creative in the way they, they killed the Christians. Uh, one of the famous ones, one of the, one of the emperors hit upon the idea of coating the Christians with tar. And he would mount them up on stakes at night at his big orgies and feasts and he would set them afire and use them for lights for his feasts. Uh, another, another story, and these are all true, these are documented. They, they took the, the believers out uh, on a frozen lake and stripped them naked and left them overnight. And of course, they died before morning. And that story is associated with a Roman soldier who was converted on the spot. When he saw the faith of the believers, he, he got off his horse and went down and, and stripped down and died with them. But uh, we can't say in just a few words what the believers really went through during those, those 200 years, particularly the last 50 years. But um, remember the Lord Jesus' precious words to the church at Smyrna. They'd apply to them. You know, The crown of life is a real reward that he gives to those who suffer for the faith. And every one of those dear saints, I'll tell you, is going to be more than recompensed when the Lord Jesus personally hands them that crown. And then no doubt they will fall at his feet 
and uh, cast it at his feet. Well, you'd wonder how we can get from there to uh, Pergamos, but it happened literally just about overnight. Many of you know the turning point came with who? That's right, Constantine. Constantine, uh, there, it's, it's probably very true, but the story goes like this. He, in 312, he was uh, out doing battle near the River Tiber, which is the river that goes to Rome and, and, and the rest of much of Italy. And uh, he, was, he was facing defeat. He was probably going to lose the battle. And he goes out and he has a vision. And in the night sky, he sees a cross, or so he thinks, formed by the stars, and a message, in this sign, triumph. Okay? That's not from God. Okay? He was not a saved man. He's probably one of, the, one of the worst enemies of the church we've ever had because he legalized Christianity. In fact, he made it, not him, but his, his, his uh, followers made it the state religion. Anyway, he, he got this sign. He went out and triumphed the next day and uh, probably believed that a lot of it had to do with this sign that he saw. If you doubt about his salvation, here's some facts about him. The fact that he delayed baptism until shortly before his death. He kept the position of Pontifex, Pontifex Maximus. That was the title of the leader of the false cult, uh, which was pervading Rome, the mystery religions, which is a whole other subject, but it was a, a, uh, a horrible cult. And he maintained the head of that uh, throughout his life. His execution of the young men who might have laid a claim to his throne. This is all after his supposed conversion. Uh, the writer here says, these things were not in keeping with the conduct of a sincere Christian. I think that's right. But uh, there was probably a, a, a sense of expediency in, in what he was doing. He immediately, first of all, stopped the persecution. In fact, he uh, returned the property to the church that had been confiscated. And listen to this. He actually subsidized the church by the state. In other words, he, gave, he made it a policy that the state would give money to help the church. Isn't that good? Yes? Uh-uh. No, you got the marrying of the church and the world here now. And that's, that's the early signs of it. Uh, later, his uh, grandchildren, uh, Theodosius I in 380 and 381, issued edicts that made Christianity the exclusive religion of the state. And if you read in, in liberal history books, they'll say, oh, this is the triumph of Christianity. Nothing could be further from the truth. Everybody became a Christian overnight by, by edict of the, of the emperor. Any who would dare to hold to any other form of worship would suffer punishment from the state. You got it? So now all of a sudden, everybody's got motivation to become a Christian. And you've got the church at Pergamos. You've got the world in the church now, no longer outside. Uh, let me just highlight real quickly here some of the, some of the uh, characteristics. <clears throat> The influx of pagans into the church through the mass conversion movements of the era contributed to the paganization of worship as the church tried to make these barbarian converts feel at home within its fold. Does that sound familiar? Huh? Does that sound like 1999? Let's make an effort. The church is no longer uh, given by God for the believers to edify them and strengthen them and have them encourage one another and worship Him. It's got to be changed now to fit the tastes of the unsaved world to make them comfortable. Man, that's not the church of God. That's not a church. That's an organization designed to make unbelievers feel comfortable. This is uh, 300 A.D. 
the influx of barbarians and the growth of Episcopal power. By now, you've really got the, the clergy is really taking off now. There's a big separation. In most, there, there are some good assemblies, don't get me wrong, obviously throughout it, but the Lord Jesus, in his letter to Pergamos, characterized that church that way, and you could characterize Christendom this way generally. If the barbarians who had been used to worshiping images were to find any real help in the church, many church leaders believed that it would be necessary to materialize the liturgy, physical things, idols, to make God seem more accessible to these worshipers. The veneration of angels, saints, relics, pictures, and statues was the logical outcome of this attitude. It started around 300 A.D. It's that old. It is not the Catholic Church yet. Okay. I, I should have kept it. I cut a little uh, thing out of the paper last week. And uh, there's a big picture. It has a profile of a man praying. And uh, the big, big words, prayer, and then it said underneath, uh, prayer is a good thing. It's conversing with God, his saints, and his angels. Right? That's where it started in 300 A.D. Connection with the monarchical state also led to a change from a simple democratic worship to a more aristocratic, colorful form of liturgy with a sharply drawn distinction between the clergy and the laity. Uh, there's more about how the seven sacraments that later were used in the, in the Roman church came into being, um, which Gregory I solemnized when he came to power. We'll, we'll talk about him when we get to the church at Thyatira. But um, there you have it. There's a brief history up of the church up to 300 A.D. And really there are three uh, stages. The, the early church, the apostolic church, was, which was generally a very healthy church, doctrinally still very sound in spite of attacks from the outside, but the, the, uh, the, the love was, was growing cold. And the Lord stirred them up with great persecution really from 100 to about 300 A.D. It was a healthy church. Uh, and as you saw in the letter to Smyrna, there was no rebuke. Nothing but praise for that church. And uh, Satan was learning, just like he did with Balaam. The frontal assault hadn't worked. And so he tried the old Trojan horse approach, the, the uh, enemy from within. And it worked great. He had the church married to the, uh, to the state. Everybody becomes a Christian. And uh, the gospel gets watered down. Interesting, I mentioned that title, Pontifus Maximus. You ever heard that before? Do you know who takes that title? The Pope, that's right. He picked up that title of the leader of the false cults that the emperor of uh, Rome had had since about 100 AD of the mystery religions and applied it to himself. I think it was Gregory, I'm not sure, but one of the first popes took that title back up again. The mitre that they wear comes from the worship of Dagon, uh, the fish god. If you ever look at it, it looks like a fish. It's got red on the inside for his mouth, you know, and then the, the lips on each side. Okay, that's, that's uh, one of the first uh, little departures on church history. I want to end on a positive note real quick. Turn back to Revelation chapter 2. We didn't talk about that wonderful reward the Lord mentioned at the end of this letter to the church at Pergamos. I really, I just loved this, this uh, treat, if you will, that he offers to them. He said, uh, to him overcomes, verse 17, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives. That is wonderful. There are, in this case, there are two kind of like secret gifts, if you will. Isn't that neat? The first one is hidden manna. Now, we don't know what it is. I've never had hidden manna. I've never had manna. 
But it's wonderful. It's, it's like a special thing, you know. It's hidden. Uh, and it's from him. And, and you, you've never had a treat, I'm sure, until you've had hidden manna, okay? But the thing that really caught my eye was this stone. Uh, because I can really relate that to other scripture. You notice on this stone is going to be a name given to the individual from the Lord Jesus himself that only they know. Isn't that precious? And it reminds me, that's the practice of the Lord throughout the Bible. Renaming people, giving them special names, isn't it? Remember Abram, way back when? No, Ed, my Hebrew uh, expert isn't here, but I'm going to do some speculation. I'm pretty sure I'm right. I, the, the word Abram, that was his original name, name uh, means exalted father. That was his original name. Now, parents give children names, you know, sometimes just because they like the sound of it. It rarely has anything to do with what they're going to be like as people, because we don't know, unless God happens to inspire it. Uh, so in the case of Abram, it was, it was exalted father. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Here he was, 90 years old, and he didn't have any children. And God did a wonderful thing. He gave him a new name, Abraham. And you can figure out, if, if you're familiar with the New Testament, what that A-B is. That's the father part, Ab. Abram is exalted father. Abraham is the father of multitudes. Isn't that neat? And he is! <laughs> and, not, and not only that, he's not just a physical father of multitudes, the, the nation of Israel, but he's a, he's a spiritual father of you and me, who are believers in Lord Jesus Christ. We're told that in the New Testament. He is the father of multitudes in more than one sense. It's great. God changed his name. And, it, and it's a perfect summary of the man, you see. That's, God chose just the perfect name for him. Anyway, the, how do I know that A.B. is the father part? I'm going to check with Noah, but I'm sure it's right. Because in the New Testament, we cry out what? By the Holy Spirit. Abba. Abba. That's the, that's the childish form of Abba. You see, Abba. We take dad and we make it dada. We make, take mom and we make it mama. Well, the Jews took Ab and, then, and, the, and the Jewish baby says Abba. Okay? It's a wonderful thing. Ab. Ram. Exalted father. Abraham. Uh, father of multitudes. Well, later, of course, the Lord changed Jacob's name from uh, Jacob supplanter, which he was, interestingly enough, to Israel. El is God, and, and Israel is, is wrestles with. Well, he who wrestles with God. I don't know if that's such a good thing, by the way. You remember he wrestled with him at the Jabbok stream, remember that? That's really where he named him that. But as you know, his, his life from there on out, he, he was wrestling with God, wasn't he? All through his whole life, wrestling with God. He didn't return to Bethel until an old man. Remember when we went through that series on Jacob and uh, Pharaoh asked him about his life. Remember what he said? My days have been what? Basically short and miserable. Isn't that, that's sad. But it's because he was fighting against God most of his life. But the one I want to finish on and encourage us about is Peter. Because the Lord Jesus did that one himself. Peter's name was, was Petros in, in the, in the uh, Greek. Simon Peter was his whole name. And in the first uh, chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus, first he says his name. He'd never met him before. And he says, your name is Simon. That must have blew him away. But then he says, your name is Cephas, meaning stone. And that was so gracious of the Lord to call him that. Because he was anything but a stone, wasn't he? Throughout, throughout his uh, time with the Lord Jesus. He was up one minute and, and down the next. One minute he'd be saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the next breath he'd be saying, Not so, Lord, being a contradiction in terms. 
At one point it was Peter himself that Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You know, when Peter rebuked Jesus for prophesying his own death and suffering. Uh, he was up and down, up and down. And uh, I, I imagine he thought about that, you know, and wondered, why did Jesus call me Cephas? And it's a wonderful thing. Right the night of his betrayal, uh, Peter, he goes through another one of his impulsive moments and says, Lord, when he hears the Lord Jesus saying, I'm going to die, he says, Lord, I'll go to death with you. And Jesus said, Satan, uh, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Now, here's the rock part. I love this. Jesus knows that he's going to use this man eventually, but he's going to go through a real serious trial coming right up, isn't he? He's going to deny knowing Jesus three times. And Jesus says, when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. You see that? There it is, Cephas. When, not if you return, when you have returned. I'll tell you, Peter must have just hung on to those words when he was out weeping bitterly because he denied the Lord. He said, when I return, not if. I'm going to, I'm going to come out of this. I'm going to recover from it. When you have returned, not, not only uh, will you be restored in fellowship, strengthen your brethren. You're going to be a rock. Remember what I called you, Cephas? Isn't that wonderful? Man, the Lord is so compassionate, so gracious. And we know the story. You've already, you're seeing it in the book of Acts. You know, uh, Literally, the stone. The, the solid one. The, the guy that was the faithful one. You know, the example. Preaching to the very men that he was trembling before uh, that night. Well, I think this is wonderful. The Lord Jesus says uh, in a promise to those who overcome, not only at the church of Pergamos, certainly anyone in a similar situation uh, where you're surrounded by compromise and you stand firm for him. He says, I will give, it's a white stone. White has to be white. It's a perfect picture of righteousness. There's a white stone with a name written that no one knows but you. Would you like to have one? I'd love to have one of those. Not everybody is going to have one, you know? Let me ask you, if Jesus were to pick one word and summarize your life as a believer for him, one word, what would it be? What would be on this? If he were to give you a stone, what would it be? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your tender and loving care for us. We think of these uh, words to the Church of Pergamos. We see that we're living in an age so similar to it. Uh, really the church is Christendom, married to the state around us, married to the society around us. And Lord, um, we sense too that we seem to be living where Satan dwells. Help us, we pray, Lord, to be shining lights. We want to take example from these early believers who were considered unusual, weird, but we know the word by you is holy because they didn't run to sin along with the people around them. We pray that we might be different. Lord Jesus, how wonderful it would be to get a white stone from you with that special name on it. How precious that would be. Lord, if there's anything worth living for, it's you. Help us, we pray, in your precious name. Amen.